Hey everyone, this is Annette Silva. Um, most of you know me, but for those who don't, I am a Texas gal living in Los Angeles with an awesome husband and a really cute son, oh. a TV producer and a lover of humor, which is why I love my husband so much. And that is Jason Silva, who is writer, director, and book author. Uh -huh. The reason we're here today, we're talking about the tale of Edgar Trunk. You've probably clicked on this podcast because you love Jason, you love the book, or you want to know more about it, and you're interested in getting a little bit into the psyche of the author of the series, and so am I. Beware. Um, I asked Jason to do this podcast with me because I always get to hear his creative conversations around his work, but I want to share it with the world because I think people are also interested in it. And um, when we open up for Art Walk and we sell the book, The Tale of Edgar Trunk, people always ask me if Jason's not available, what's the book about? And I like to say it is a story about an orphan who grows up in a sludge factory and he's on his journey of finding what's going on in the world and where his family is and he really just wants to be loved. So through book one and then into book two when he makes two friends in a new world and now we're going into book three, it's basically the journey of Edgar Trunk and his search for answers, love, friendship, and all of it through a courageous, curious lens. Uh, Jason, is that how you would describe the book? I love that. Thank you. Uh, I'm honored to be interviewed by you, for one. I'm lucky. Thank you. You know, Edgar's world really isn't too far-fetched from where we're at now. Uh, the background is the world at large fell um, into a period of darkness and yep. it actually was dark. No sun uh, could be visible, could be seen for about 40 days. And the this is all like background before the books, uh, the story of the books, but just to give the context, the um, this darkness caused people to freak out, understandably. And as we've seen in moments of crisis, people uh, got together and we came up with a solution and the solution was all the inventors around the world got together and they invented a machine that would literally put the world on life support and allow it to continue to survive so that we could continue as a human race and it uh, this device powerful and wonderful as it was fell into the wrong hands and sort of just expedited the uh, end of civilization instead and so all these parents, uh, well, all these inventors, many of which were parents, took their children and knowing this sort of impending doom was happening, they hid them away. Well, Edgar uh, of these kids is actually probably the most important, which is why we're following him. And so we start our story with him, but it's been nine years since his parents hid him in this sludge factory, which we learn is sort of the, the middle of everything, really. It's sort of like, he was being hid in the most, uh, or the least obvious place uh, to be hid, which was right underneath the nose of 
the sort of evil forces. And mind you, when he showed up at the sludge factory, he came in a trunk, <laughs> which is how he got his name. That's right. He, his name was Edgar and there was a note in the trunk uh, addressed to the kind of caretaker person who operated the sludge factory uh, who was going to have to look after Edgar, uh, even though he never, he didn't even know that there was an Edgar and certainly uh, had no intentions or aspirations to be a, a caretaker of a child. Uh, but yeah, it was just Edgar and he was in a trunk and therefore he just called him Edgar Trunk. It's like the dark version of a, what's that bird that comes and delivers your baby? Oh, the stork? Yeah, it's like <laughs> the dark version of a stork. It's like you don't want a baby and it comes in this trunk. It's like Amazon stork. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he, uh, he arrives at this factory and it's not, we fast forward nine years and he's 10 years old and he has only known his life inside this factory and strange things start happening, sort of magical things, sort of fantastical things. And he begins to explore the, um, the sort of maze-like interior of this factory. And um, I don't want to linger too long on this because I know we want to talk more about book three. But in terms of context and a starting point, this is like where it all began. Yeah, and he gets out of the factory. Spoiler alert, but I'm guessing a lot of you have read book one. He finds himself in a fantasy world where he meets Olivia and Feebles, who then start to realize and peel back the layers of this onion of this world that is not real. And they escape there and find themselves now in a new location that is both mystery for Edgar and Olivia at the beginning of book three, and that's where we pick up um, book three, which well, is titled... Well, before we get there, just to give a quick little capsule of book two, um, it is a fantasy world, um, but what's different about book two versus book one is that book one is Edgar lives in the most disgusting place on earth, literally a factory that makes sludge. So when he escapes, he meets... Uh, this young girl, this young woman, Olivia Saunders, he's 10, she's 11. He's lived in the worst place, most disgusting place on earth. She has grown up in the most wonderful, perfect place on earth. It's a town called Pleasanton, and it's very like manicured lawns, everyone's nice, a little too nice. Um, everything is clean, it's always sunny days, the weather's always perfect. It's sort of like the Southern California of, <laughs> of their story. And uh, yeah, it doesn't take long for uh, Olivia and Edgar and Olivia's dog, Feebles, to uncover very dark things are happening. And the picture-perfect town and existence that she has in Pleasanton is completely just uh, veneer. Yeah. And I have to say, Olivia Saunders is my favorite character. I've told <laughs> you that since I met her. Like, I think because I really relate to her, she's a know-it-all, she's OCD, like if you put a glass of water on the coffee table and picked it up and there was a ring, she would come swoop in immediately and clean it up <laughs> because she's that like particular about her home and everything being perfect and I love that. But also on the inside, she just wants to be a good human. Yeah. And I think Edgar really makes her question that and brings it out in her. And so 
through this whole journey, like Olivia Saunders, I've always been team Olivia. Oh. Yeah. What, um, how, how do you feel that relationship went in book two? It sort of had a little bit of a journey. It did because I think at the beginning she was really excited that there's a new person. She gets to be a host, like her most am, like important role in this world. And then he starts to break all the rules and get curious and go places he's not supposed to, talk to people he's not supposed to. And she's like so against it, very much like a Hermione Granger, like, <laughs> like rule follower. And to a fault. To a fault, totally, because because he does that, it allows her to question the world that she's grown up in and wonder what else is out there. And because of it, she builds a trust with Edgar, like a total close, strong friendship that is like, to me, a brother-sister relationship, at least at this point in the series. Yeah, it's, um, it's really sad because... Edgar really, like in book one, he has no friends. There's really no one to talk to, his mean uncle. Uh, there is this other worker named Stupot. And who, dust bunnies. Well, there, yeah, there's some creatures along the way, but I don't know if I'd call them friends. They're sure. sort of like chance encounter. He, he comes, they have their moment, and he leaves. Yeah. Um, he makes a new friend who's got a little bit bigger of a role to play uh, in this uh, this character named Sebastian, who's this sort of crow-like creature um, but in terms of like growing up like he only really had Stupot who uh, is a very loving character but who's very quiet easily intimidated and um, though he has only a little he is always there to offer what little he has to Edgar which is great but in terms of like someone else to really identify with have a relationship with certainly another kid he just doesn't get that Olivia, similarly, doesn't really have anyone her age to relate to her whole life growing up. Uh, but she does have this dog, and dogs are awesome, so that helps. But she has uh, the only other people really in her life, other than some neighbors who suspiciously only say one or two catchphrases. There's no real engaging conversation there. Um, she, but she has her mammy and her pappy who we basically learn are just like two mannequins and she's completely projected personalities onto them probably as a coping mechanism and it's really sad because she really believes those are her caretakers that's her mammy and her pappy almost like grand i feel like they have more of like a grandparent vibe yeah than like a mom dad vibe but um you know now there's edgar and it's like wow here's a real person finally you can relate to and there's some resistance there and it's just being friends and having friends your own age that's so new to them. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we see with our son, Sage, like when he's around other kids, it just like brings a whole new personality and curiosity out of him that is so beautiful that like even if you and I roll on the floor with him, we're not kids. So we can't relate the same way. Totally. And Edgar and Olivia definitely share that relationship. That moment in book two, and I know we'll move on to book three, but just sort of working our way there, the moment when Olivia realizes Mammy and Pappy, they're not real. Her world is not real. God, it's heartbreaking. There's just sort of like this maturity that kind of happens overnight, it feels like. It has to, because she realizes like 
no one's going to protect her or help her but herself. Yeah. With Edgar and Feebles in tow. I mean, that's sort of like, that's really the crux of the entire series. You know, you have this imperiled world and there's no adults. You know, you um, are really in the world of these very few children who have essentially grown up without any adult supervision, adult teaching, and in like a Lord of the Flies way have had to figure it out for themselves. And thankfully, uh, unlike Lord of the Flies, these kids really are good at heart. They're, they're pure, they're innocent. Yeah. Even though they've been forced to grow up and they've had to face dark things, they still hold on to that purity, which I feel is sort of like represents the hope of humanity in a way. And represents you as a writer. Like you're, this is through your lens too. And these are characters that you've created that are so complex and beautiful and beautifully flawed. They, they have their own voices and yet they're all going for the same thing. I can only imagine being a kid in a world with no adult, no parental figure. How, for you, how do you differentiate who Edgar is versus who Olivia is in terms of your writing with their voices and their wants and their needs as, as, as kind of like co-protagonist in a way? Well, I think, you know, I just, I just really start with, you know, where are they coming from? What is their upbringing? What are like the external factors that have you know been present as they've grown? Because they both essentially grew up in captivity in a way. Um, Edgar's was more obviously oppressive, just being in a factory, not having a mean uncle, being forced to do a job. It was very like Charles Dickens. Um, but then you had Olivia, who was sort of given a picture-perfect upbringing, but that was all just a facade. So the things that I think really help you grow emotionally are like having loving parents, having love in your life, having friends, having good examples. And I can't say that either of them really had much of that, although what was there came in, you know, came from different sources. For Edgar, it was with Stupod and Sebastian and some of these characters that he meets along the way. With Olivia, it's the, the one outlier citizen of Pleasanton is this crazy old lady, Dolores Maccabee, who always seems to be spouting some nonsense, but actually turns out to be um, the true caretaker of Olivia. But she herself has been dealing with trauma from everything that happened to the world that led up to the present day. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, these are just all sort of wounded, broken characters who have to survive. They have no choice but to do that. And in terms of their personalities, I don't know. I think, you know, the more you live with them, and, you know, for me, I've lived with this, these characters and this series for almost 18 years now. And, you know, just from the initial conception to where we are today. And they grow. They grow in you. You know, the more depth they have, the more dynamic they become, you know, the more independent and unique they are. And then you just kind of throw them through the gauntlet of, their obstacles and then the relationships with each other and the differing personalities and you know you just kind of they allow themselves to shine in a weird way and um, you know even reading them later when it's been a long time since I actually did the writing part of it you know they do strike me as unique they stand alone 
Book one, I really got to explore one main character, Edgar. Book two, I got to continue Edgar's story, and but really explore this character, new character in Olivia. And now in book three, it just, it is not an it, it still continues to be an isolation story, but it's not as much of a character isolation story. Oh my God. First of all, I have to say, I have read book one and two before. I read it again as you were writing book three this summer. And I was just like panting at how great <laughs> it is. And I'm like, this is the best book in the series. And it's not because it's an accumulation of story or a journey of characters. Like it stands alone on its own as a really great book. And wow. I think you could read it as book three. Like you could start with book three if yeah. you wanted to. And you would still understand the world where these people have been where they're going, what happened in the past, what's happening in the present. The beautiful thing about book three is that you really dove into the inner monologue that these characters were having in their minds that is so relatable. They are dealing with issues as young adults that we've all gone through about friendship and bravery and feelings and love and also like sarcasm and annoyance and all the things you go through when you're like a Mm preteen. There's so many like so many feelings at that age and I feel like you really captured them really well with all of these characters that we meet. Not only Olivia and Edgar but surprise they can hear Feeble's thoughts now. (laughs) And the he's dog, hilarious. He's so sarcastic. He's such a, oh, he's such a dog. It's <laughs> hilarious. And then you meet all these other characters, which um, we meet not only in the present of the story, but then the beautiful thing that you've done is you've written these interludes throughout the book that go back and explain some of the backstories of who these characters are, two of which are... Gilly and Scrap, my favorite (laughs) also, um, which you'll meet soon. But uh, tell me a little bit about the new characters that we're going to meet and the interludes that introduce them. Well, thank you. Oh, my gosh. Um, You're welcome. I share your excitement (laughs) because not only has it been a long time since I got to dig into the series, but now it just... You know, all that time that I've been apart, I've grown. I've grown as a person. I've grown uh, as a storyteller. And I've grown just in my life. You know, I have a family now. And um, it's been really, really rewarding and tough. I mean, the rewards came after. It was, you know, the work came first. The rewards came after. But I want to point out some, I call them significant changes in writing books three that uh, are different from one and two. And one and one of those is point of view. In books one and two, you know, the 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 point of view was third person omniscient. So basically there was a narrator who sort of was a character, was sort of present here and there throughout the books, who could pluck thoughts from any of the characters at will and I felt like it worked really well for the first two books and it allowed you to be a little bit more grounded in the fantasy 
because it is a new world. And there's a lot of mystery, so you don't have a lot of answers right, right away. So book three, I knew we're going to meet a lot more characters. And we've been with some of these characters so long already that I really am interested in seeing their growth. I'm really interested in this sort of interpersonal development and their relationship and emotional development. And sure, there's plot and mystery. There's actually a lot of plot and mystery, but and a lot of answers. I really wanted to be front and center in their journeys. And so I slightly pivoted with the point of view and it's still third person, but now it's third person limited. And almost each chapter, sometimes a couple of times within a chapter, there will be a clear point of view. You're in Edgar's point of view. Because of that, you're also in his thoughts and feelings, which is great in a very intimate way. When you're with Olivia, you're in her thoughts and feelings in a very intimate way. And there's sort of some guest appearance points of view that happen throughout um, to just help, I guess, round out the experience of like the psyche of these characters and their points of view living through these events. The other thing I did was, uh, there was this whole backstory. I'd done all this work on a backstory, but it was sort of leaking through in drips and drabs. And here we are, book three. I just felt it's time to start answering some questions, being much more giving with the world, what's happening, and especially some of the sort of like magic and some of the rules and really just connecting the dots for readers. And so every three chapters, there is a new interlude. And these interludes are standalone stories that take us back in time, four, six, sometimes, I think 11 years is the longest. And we get to meet some characters that are sort of like peripheral characters or like we've heard about them. Um, there's new characters too, but each of the interludes is really anchored around a character we either know and love or a character we've heard a lot about. And also just like these events of the world that I gave that context earlier about the, the inventors and banding together. And there's this whole period in time of this story's timeline that to me is really fascinating. And um, just to give like further context for these characters' journeys in the present, the present of the story, present time of the story, I wanted to like explore that. And uh, they were just so much fun. You mentioned one of them, uh, Gilly and Scrap, uh, when they met and uh, they did so living in a lighthouse. And that doesn't mean much for any of these listeners right now. But um, basically the setup is you meet this old man who's living in a lighthouse at the end of the world and the, the doom and gloom has sort of happened already but it maybe hasn't reached everywhere and he has found this place to kind of have his final respite and even though he just wants to live out the end of his days he's he's like a really prominent inventor who is more of an academic more of a professor but he made contributions to the field of science that was almost like not almost, was instrumental in this sort of world machine that the inventors built, they wouldn't have been able to even conceive of it, let alone build it, if it wasn't for this scientist's contribution. So he's like, I'm done. I did my time. I'm hanging in my lighthouse. I'm going to die, you know, eventually, but this is my last move. And of course, 
a uh, he is found and somebody basically drops their kid off and, and runs away saying, sorry, can't can't help. Bye. And so I guess now, that was the thing to do. Just drop your kid off at some random location. It's like a life daycare. <laughs> You're just like, here you go. Well, I think they he was known to be an important person and he was sort of fortified in his lighthouse and um, and the that, darkness was coming. What, what, what more could the parent do but save their child? Right. It, it certainly seems reckless and irresponsible that they would just drop the kid off. It's sort of like that story of like the baby getting dropped off at the fire station. Right. Yeah. But this was for their own good. So they're in this lighthouse and this kid, he grows, he's, as he gets older, you know, he's probably four or five years old and he is tending to this old man's little scrapes and scratches and little ailments that um, befall him just, you know, living in this lighthouse with no elevator and it's not a very uh, luxurious place. And um, there are, of course, this is of course not a normal lighthouse and there are secrets within and uh, a lot of, and there is magic that happens in this chapter, including the, the introduction of a third character in this sort of like encapsulated story. Hattie. Hattie. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, probably one of the cutest characters. Of the, he's the youngest character in, in the story. And the most badass. Oh, he's awesome. His name is Scrap. Although he introduces his name as Squap. 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 But he is two years old at the time, so uh, <laughs> you, have to get, you have to forgive him. But yeah, he's just got, he's kind of like a, a little cowboy character. He says howdy and uh, he just, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, he's like a little MacGyver. Like when he grows up and, and we meet him in the book, he's like a like a little mad genius that has a compound with all of his like knickknacks and stuff that he's scrapped together to make all of these different like equipment, machine tools. He basically is like the, um, not the janitor, but like the utility master of yeah, he's like got a very like keen sense of mechanics. Like, you know, he's kind of an inventor. He, he's more so like, remember, he spent all this time with this this really important inventor. Since we've already told you, he ends up at this lighthouse. So he's got this training and clearly had like a knack and a sense of wonder and curiosity. And so he definitely comes out of that experience to where he's like four or five years older and in the book, uh, in the present day of book three, and yeah, he's just like totally MacGyver's like a really great comparison because they salvage, they 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 do little foraging trips and they salvage whatever they can. And Scrap is the one who can turn that salvage into something useful that uh, could really help them. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Book three stands on its own. You could start with book three and you would really love it. But also the interludes stand on their own. They're such great short stories i think they're between like nine and 15 pages each and i mean those you could submit to mcsweeney's because they're just so good and <laughs> like live on their own uh you mentioned that they're fun but they're not all fun because we yeah. also meet a character who becomes sort of the villain of book three tell us about him oh his his story everything so so far in the series, we've got a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old. I've told you about an 8-year-old. Um, and now I can't remember if we even covered it. But in book three, a little quick catch-up. So book three, almost like 
with no time passing at all, we come out of book two into book three. So Edgar, Olivia, and the, their dog Feebles, who we learn can talk, but he talks into your mind, and he's like the comedic relief, and he's really funny and snarky and, Very funny. and lovable. So they kind of end up in the desert and realize for the first time that the world around them is kind of a wasteland. So after some adventure or misadventure, depending on your perspective, they encounter a, are actually kind of saved by someone, Scrap, who takes them back to his campsite, which is just this really baffling oasis in the middle of the desert where you have this little group of kids who are, again, eight years old with Scrap, all the way up to 11, 12 years old. And then you have the last character in the group who's the oldest has just turned 13. His name's Tim. Oof. Yeah, he's a teenager now, and all of a sudden now he has just turned rotten for whatever reason. They had this really great community. It was very supportive. They were living well. They were just doing their thing, and Tim turns 13, and it just seems like he just becomes a different person. He's like, this ain't a democracy anymore. This is a monarchy, (laughs) and I am the ruler. He takes over leadership in like a tyrannical way and uh, something else is sort of happening simultaneously which is these kids have discovered there's like a mountain range off, off to one direction of the desert and they've been doing little expeditions out there just to expand their search of salvage and to see what's out there and they uh, have discovered a cave but the thing about this cave is that they can't get inside. They can't even get close. They can't even get close. There's just something like an invisible force field or, or what, but they, as they approach the entrance of the cave, they start to feel this overwhelming dread, and it's a feeling, but it becomes like paralyzing. Yeah. I, I mean, the way you describe it, it, you described it in such a way where like I could feel those feelings, <laughs> where they're like just... And it's also this whole theme of darkness, which is one thing in the world that they live in, but then what is the darkness in your own mind? What are those dark thoughts that we all have? Imagine those at their like level 11 in your own brain and body, like where you're literally paralyzed and you want to go forward, but you can't because you're just like dreading everything. Like so sad. Well, there's definitely a um, inspiration or parallels to the idea of like the shadow self that is like that dark side of us that we tend to not want to talk about, tend to not want to listen to, and yet it's part of us. And um, not a direct literal metaphor of it, but definitely in the territory. So there is all this obsession around this cave and they can't even get close to it, and yet some of the kids have sort of woken up and realized they've been in the cave. In the time they can't remember, they've been in the cave and no one saw them go and no one saw them return. But, and it's a theory um, because they didn't see it, so it's only their theory, but these kids are the ones who visit the cave finding themselves without a shadow. 
So it's almost like a separation of shadow self and I don't know what even what the component to shadow self is, but um, acknowledged self maybe, but you know, they um, are losing their shadows and once they've lost their shadows, then they kind of just, they're definitely not themselves anymore. And, and it manifests in a little bit different way based on the person whose shadow has been um, taken, we'll just call it. And so that's why book three is called A Disappearance of Shadows. And so when Edgar, Olivia, and Feebles end up within this little campsite, this oasis, and they've got this tyrannical teenager, they learn that this shadow thing is a real problem. And that they also learn that the sort of like flourishing of this oasis is not a permanent thing. That yeah. they rely on something that they find in the desert that's sort of like Bring, fuels it, brings power to it. It's sort of the magical element of it and that this oasis isn't forever. And so the shadow problem is imminent. The, uh, the slow degradation of their oasis, which has to constantly be replenished, none of this is forever. So they've got to band together and really like try to tackle these problems as a unit. One thing I tell people often who are buying the book or interested in the book is that it might be a children's middle grade fiction series mm. for ages 8 to 12 is like the target. But this is like also for adults. I read it twice as an adult, really enjoyed it. And for me, I feel like it also serves as a cautionary tale of like mm. what could become of the world if totally. we don't take care of it. And that's like politically, economically, even climate change, like there are consequences to the way that we live. And we as parents are very cognizant of creating a world that our son can thrive in, that our grandkids can thrive in. Yeah. Um, I know that wasn't like your main intention as an author in this book, but like what of that or of any other kind of thematic messaging do you want people to walk away with, with a series like this? Well, I don't know if this is on purpose or not. Um, climate change is a problem. It is real. And we are the single most destructive force of the planet, just as, as a race. Um, although I don't wake up every day and, and think about that. It's not how I start my day. No, neither but, of us. <laughs> right. And uh, I mean, you, you can and you'll go crazy. So it's like, how do you balance it? But you know, clearly that is on my mind and is in the background. Um, but I think the biggest thing that, the biggest light that leads me down the tunnel of this story is more the psychological aspect of kids who are parentless. You know, what does that look like? Because good or bad, there are always adults around. We don't really have all children's societies, I don't think. <laughs> if, they, if we do, <laughs> we don't know about them. But I do, I just, I believe so much in the tenacity, the power, the purity um, of youth, of children. And it's not just children alone. It's more the human spirit. I feel like the older we get, we can become more hardened. I think there's just something about when you're young, you're almost more dialed into the human spirit than any of us. Oh yeah. And 
I wonder as like a survival mechanism, can, is humanity enough? If we had to start over, would it be enough? Would there be enough built into who we are and the human spirit? And if you believe in soul or, you know, whatever you believe in energy, that human spirit, what does that look like in a reset situation? But I just wonder, in a situation where you have kids who are really good, genuine, which all kids are good and genuine. Yes. So what does that look like? Can they survive? Like, are they just like little chicks that are bound to get swooped up or squashed or drowned? Or do they have the strength to kind of tackle these adult problems? And I think they do. And so I have been obsessed with exploring what that would look like and also not trying to sugarcoat the dark aspects of it. Um, there are very dark things that happen in this series and I think it is content appropriate um, and it is hopeful. Yeah. But there, you know, the, we deal with some tough things in this book. Yeah. I have a closing quote from the book oh, gosh. that I want to read, but is there anything else about book three that you haven't touched on that you want to? Just that some of the things, some of the highlights for me, book three, um, one, there is a massive reveal at the end regarding the identity of one of, or more of the sort of legendary uber evils of the series. Yes. So it's, I mean, it's... Mind-blown emoji. Yeah, mind-blown emoji for sure. Um, there are some really great new relationships forming. There, there is some, uh, I hesitate to call it romance because it's not, but you know, it sort of is, you know, puppy love type dabblings. Yes. And in all the emotions that, that come with that, especially when it's a new, yeah. new, a new experience. And uh, there's just, I really feel like this is a full, this is a feast. You know, this, this book is a feast. There's so much in it. And it is quite large compared to the other two books. Yeah. And it's going to be in hardcover, just like book one and two are, which if you have one, I just love the book art itself, which was illustrated by a good friend of ours, Mikey Peterson. So talented. And it's like got this really awesome feel to it like it's like um like a rubbery glossy kind of feel which most uh, paper or hardbacks i've ever had don't have this feel like oh, jason yeah. took the time to like find the right book printer to make something that not only feels really good in your hands but looks good on your shelf oh yeah i mean i surround myself with books there's just sort of a comfort to it and we have a whole library oh my god literally and, and like little shelves of books here and there and stacks and yeah with this book i i wanted to do the story justice by producing a quality hardcover book that would feel good in your hands that would you would want to look at that would be interesting and you know something you yes that you'd want to own them all and you'd want to own them in the hardcovers and yeah i just the Everyone involved from top to bottom, and there are so many, have just really, really been passionate and have done an, an exceptional job with it. And uh, 
early versions of the artwork for book three are of course out since the campaign has launched. Um, that is not a final version, um, but quick shout out to Mikey Peterson, who is an incredibly talented artist and storyteller um, of many different formats, but his work on the series has really, really given it the uh, signature look and feel and just totally nailed like the darkness of the world and, and but also the curiosity and wonder of it. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about what he's done already on book three and, and there's, it's not even finished. So um, looking forward to that. Yeah, when you asked him to do book three, he was like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buddy. Here, I'm going to send you something. I just, scra I just scribbled on a napkin and, and it already looked amazing. I know, I know. It's awesome. Okay, so I got the privilege of reading the book, book three, as you were still writing it, which is like VIP of me. <laughs> and I also got in the habit as I was reading it of highlighting quotes or passages from the book and texting them to you when I read them because mm. I was so moved by what it was saying or like just related so well to it. And of course, most of my quotes came from Olivia because like I said, she's <laughs> me. And so I wanted to end this by reading one of the quotes that I texted you um, back in August when I was reading the book. Mm. She closed her eyes in defeat. And while the metal claws cutting into her flesh, restraining her, hurt terribly, the pain was nothing compared to the agony she felt for having failed her friends. Mm. So like, oh, <laughs> you feel for her because oh. like she cares so much about being a good person and having quality friendships and they are her world literally no parents no family so for her like failing her friends which we'll learn what that means in book three was like oh I just felt for Olivia oh thank you uh, even just hearing that passage and I feel like disassociated from the writing of it in a way because it's been so long and um Wow, really special that you had flagged that. And I remember when you sent that to me, that uh, just how amazing it felt to read those words and, and feel that the, it was authentic, that yeah. this was a character. This wasn't just me writing as me and, and other voices. Well, the words were like connecting to me while I was reading it. Like I was feeling emotions. I was feeling the feels. So yeah. like just a credit to your beautiful writing and like your writing as... Um, the writer that you are today versus the writer you were over 10 years ago when you wrote book two and totally. even more when you wrote book one. And I'll just say in closing that I can't take credit for the series or all the hard work that you've put into writing and marketing and publishing this book, but I will give myself a pat on the back <laughs> because it. it was my idea for you to finally write book three after a 10-year hiatus, I sat you down in May and I said, babe, people are always asking when is book three coming out? How many books are in the series? And I know you took that time to focus on filmmaking, which has been really great, but let's like, let's push book three forward now. It's time. It's, we're ready. And you didn't even hesitate. You were like, yeah, when can I start? And I'm like, well, why don't you take that train trip from Union Station LA to Union Station Chicago as like your kickoff writer's retreat. And that's exactly what you did this summer. 
That's what I did, and it's hard to believe it, it was this year. But um, yes, you, I owe it all to you because you were inspired by it enough, the story, to encourage and enable me to continue it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful to be here now recording this and, and where we are with the book. And it's, it's all planned now. You know, the rest of the series is planned. It's not like a maybe thing. And um, I really hope that people find the pre-order that definitely helps us in this endeavor. And, you know, I, we want, really want to continue to do these limited edition hardcover releases to complete the set. Uh, although what's left is what's left. We're going to be switching to paperback uh, exclusively after the initial run of book three and books one and two. There's some available remaining, but uh, once those run out, which it's, is going to happen, then yeah, it'll be digital ebook and paperback only. And when we release those, I don't even know. Um, but it's been really special, and I'm just just so thankful for you, for Sage, for my family, and friends, and you know all the people who've supported. And uh, because of all that, we get to keep doing this. We sure do.